Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear page by page. This is page 497. At this point in the story, I'm tempted to lie, to say I spoke these things in an uncontrollable rage, that I was overwhelmed with grief at the memory of my murdered family. I'm tempted to say I tasted plum and nutmeg. Then I would have some excuse. But they were my words. In the end, I was the one who said those things. Only me. Denna responded in kind, hurt and furious and sharp-tongued as myself. We were both proud and angry and filled with the unshakable certainty of youth. We said things we never would have said otherwise. And when we left, we did not leave together. My temper was hot and bitter as a bar of molten iron. It seared at me as I walked all the way back to Severin. It burned as I made my way through the city and waited for the freight lifts. It smoldered as I stalked through the mayor's estate and slammed the door to my rooms behind me. It was only hours later that I cooled enough to regret my words. I thought of what I might have said to Denna. I thought of telling her how my troop was killed, about the Chandrian. I decided I would write her a letter. I would explain it all, no matter how foolish or unbelievable it seemed. I brought out a pen and ink and laid it on a sheet of fine white paper on the writing desk. I dipped the pen and tried to think of where I could begin. My parents had been killed when I was 11. It was an event so huge and horrifying, it had driven me nearly mad. In the years since, I had never told a soul of those events. I had never so much as whispered them in an empty room. It was a secret I had clutched so tightly for so long that when I dared think of it, it lay so heavy in my chest that I could barely breathe. I dipped the pen again, but no words came. I opened a bottle of wine, thinking it might loosen the secret inside me. Give me some finger hold I could use to pry it up. I drank until the room spun and the nib of the pen was crusted with dry ink. Hours later, the blank sheet still stared at me. I beat my fist against the desk in fury and frustration, striking it so hard my hand bled. That is how heavy a secret can become. It can make blood flow easier than ink. And that's the page and the chapter. I'm Jordana. I'm Jeremy. I'm Nick. Hey guys. Uh huh. We're halfway there. Whoa. <laughs> I think that it will certainly be odd if it is revealed later that Quoth was under a spell when he he makes a point here to to take ownership of the things he said. Yeah, like I was also going to mention that if, you know, there would be a dramatic irony if if Quoth insists, like, whatever I said, I said it, you know, not under the influence of anything. I said it, it was all me. There would be a dramatic irony if even in the frame narrative, he did not know that Denna was manipulating him somehow. I'm not saying that I would that would make me like it anymore. I'm just saying, like, that might be something that, the author is aiming for this is i guess i in technically in the in the frame narrative we see it first but i guess in time this occurs first but it is a another time in which we see both unable to write 
So we know he's unable to write in the frame and we see him unable to write here. And I'm not sure that those things are connected, but they're happening. (laughs) That's a really good point. That's a really good observation. Yeah. And what of course is like the thing that prevents him from being able to write. It's a A secret of his heart. Oh, well the secret of his heart, but also what if, what if the intended recipient of this story is Denna? Oh, maybe. Hmm. I think my my interpretation is that it, it is a secret of the heart that is so painful that even though it's like the one thing he absolutely needs to say, the one thing that might be able to mend the bridge, you know, between Quoth and Denna, he he just cannot bring himself to to talk about it because it's like so it's so painful and that pain is so like woven up into his psyche and his being and in a similar way maybe in the frame narrative whatever tragedy has befallen him you know in the time between this the narrative inside this book and the frame narrative uh, that that is now a secret of his heart that he just like can't find the words to talk about maybe it does seem like he now understands and i think we've all done this when we've been in a fight and we then replay the fight and go oh i should have said this i should have said this i think he does understand now that he should have told her everything at this time. Like that would have, I I truly feel that it would have cleared everything up. And obviously it's a story. And obviously like the story doesn't happen if things don't shake out the way that they do in the story. Uh, But it's weird because it's an honesty is the best policy situation, but in a different way than how it went down. Cause he was being honest, but in a nasty way, whereas he should have just been honest about the reason he felt that way. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like the his whole mindset in this moment is very familiar to me. Like, I feel like a lot of the time, if you have like a big blow up fight with someone in the moment, you are just so full of your own righteous anger that you just like, you know, you're like riding high on adrenaline. And it's only in the aftermath that you are able to to like look at what you what you have said and done in a in a more kind of objective way and kind of think about you know the the things that you maybe shouldn't have said in the heat of the moment and i use that phrase advisedly because quote's whole metaphorical framework for his anger is molten metal and fire and heat right his 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 temper is as hot and bitter as a bar of molten iron it's molten iron, but then it cools, which is a metaphor I love that as it goes first, it's a molten iron and then it sears and then it burns and then it smolders. And then finally it's cool enough that he can actually think about it. But I, I think that's a really fun metaphor that it's, it's painful and then it's merely searing and so on and so forth. Like I, I love it. I think that's great writing. Yeah. And I, I agree. Some of the other words that I like on, on this page, like that are, I don't know, evocative, if that's the right word he it's less so than the metaphor that is used with the metal but he he like rothfuss uses the wording the unshakable certainty of youth and like in perspective i look back on like the people that i was around as a teenager and the person who i was as a teenager i'm like yes that is a thing that we all had but none of us would have admitted that we had it oh yeah because you don't know right like i i completely agree when i was a teenager i knew everything and i was right about everything 
And it's only... Like, I don't think I was a particularly confident teenager, but there were some things that I always thought were just like, this is the way it is. And it just hadn't occurred to me that it wasn't until someone bothered to mention that it wasn't. Hmm. And it's that that to me feels like that is the unshakable certainty. Like you just you just know and you feel that like this is the way the thing is. And then when someone shows you that it's not, you're like, but wait, no, no, that's not what. That's wrong. You're wrong. You're <laughs> wrong about that. Yeah, and like the automatic reaction is to push back against it. Yeah. Because of that certainty. Yeah. And of course. You know, if two people are both convinced that they are right about something and they can't agree about what, you know, what that something is, you know, that's going to lead to a fight. You know, I think that is part of the reason why we have this this podcast cliche of teenagers <laughs> as being. But I'm dumb. No, we have this this cliche of, of teenagers as being like stubborn and uh, sort of like know-it-alls who are so sure that they have figured the whole world out. Jordan, I remember at the beginning of this chapter, or at least I seem to remember this, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were asking about the significance of the, the secrets. Why is he asking about secrets of the heart? I think we have a very clear answer now. And why yeah. we have the interlude explaining Tecum's theory of the secrets of the heart. Yeah. Yeah, because of course at first it kind of feels out of place and then suddenly we get all of this and everything makes sense. Mm -hmm. Could a name be a secret? In that sense, like a capital N name, naming is like the secret name of things. Could it all be related somehow? I can see a name being a secret. I'm not necessarily sure that I want to like say like, yeah, that's definitely it because I'm not at all sure. But I, d I don't think it's off the table. There's certainly a tradition of demonology that holds that demons have secret names. And if you know the secret name, you can command them. I think that that could be. But I personally like my fictions a little bit less neat and tidy than that. Especially because I think in some sense, one of the things this book is doing is trying to show how uh, stories are often oversimplifications of events and narratives and feelings and people who are more messy and complicated and um, nuanced than stories would would have them be and i think that it would somewhat cheapen that theme of the book if it turned out that everything was all really connected and it all came back to like one idea hmm i don't have any notes on that i do have other notes though give us your other notes what are your other notes jordana well i feel like it's sort of like a it's like a mostly ending note because it weaves into the chapter title and other things. So maybe I should hold back depending on what you guys have. Uh, I don't have anything else. Nick? Nor I. All right. Wonderful. So, well, then I'm just going to start with the main end note, which is that the chapter title is blood and ink. And we get the chapter title on the back, uh, like on the end page here where he says it can make blood flow easier than ink. Cause he's talking about his hand bleeding and, and the ink. I don't really understand how, his hand could bleed from hitting a flat thing hard. Like I feel You've like you need a sharp edge to make. Have you through. have you ever punched a wall over and over? Not that I have, but you know, if you hit something over and over a lot, eventually you're going to get abrasions. Yeah, but like your knuckles are pointy, so that makes sense. Right, but Jordana, let me assure you that you can strike something with blunt force and still make your hand bleed. Okay. 
I mean, I, I believe you. That makes sense to me. I just haven't seen it happen. All right. Anyway, back to the actual page and more important things. So we have the end of the chapter. We have blood and ink on the page. And we're also looking at the halfway point of the book. And it's interesting to note that, like, like this is a really, like, the title of the chapter is very visceral. The chapter itself is, like, crazy emotional. I definitely, like, almost cried several times while we read this chapter. Um, and, like, it's right in the middle. And actually, for us, it's about to be a bit of a cliffhanger because we're going to be taking a break. Um, but I don't think it is at all by mistake that Rothfuss has put something so dramatic in the center of the book. No. I mean, if you think about like the three act structure model that is often used uh, to construct a screenplay and is also just like applicable to a lot of other kinds of fiction, the midpoint of any story is supposed to be a big, dramatic, emotional turning point with high stakes uh, where some part of the character's life is like dramatically changed or their circumstances dramatically shift or they they either win big or they lose big in a meaningful way and i feel like the scene is uh a perfect illustration of that and the fact that it literally comes exactly halfway through the book uh speaks to something that maybe we don't talk about as often as we might but like rothfuss's uh excellent command of structure it also comes one and a half pages before the idea of the bandits waylaying tax collectors are introduced. And uh, in not in one more chapter, in exactly one chapter, Quoth is off with the mercenaries. So this is very much the end of an act. This is an act break. If this was a show, this would be the end of an episode because a whole new plot starts in the next chapter. I guess that makes it a very good place to be doing our, our break then. <laughs> it definitely does. There's a little teaser for you. But I think it also, that plays into Quoth's decision. I mean, I don't know how much of a decision it is because he, he's often being voluntold by, uh, the mayor. by the mayor to do these things. But I think that Quoth doesn't mind being scarce. I think he might have, you know, if he and Denna were in a good place, he might have begged off from this in order to spend more time with her. But because... Uh, they've just had a huge drag out fight. No doubt he wants to make himself scarce for some time. Well, funny you should say that because I'm sorry to say that I have read a few pages ahead because I couldn't help myself. Uh, as I often do when we're reading this book, I just kind of get sucked back into it. Uh, and he doesn't even like think about Denna until he's basically already like off. He's like on the road. And then he thinks, oh crap, I left town and I didn't, ever like write Denna to tell her I didn't even write her to tell her I was leaving town. I just vanished. What must she be thinking? And he like, uh, you know, again, a teaser for our glorious return, but he basically meets a tinker on the road and like, you know, as part of their bargain, he like gets the tinker to deliver a message to the tavern where Denna was last staying being like, I'm so sorry. I'll explain everything when I get back. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because we would have had a slew of angry letters. And while I do encourage you to keep writing letters, listeners, uh, I wouldn't want to have all the same ones. We will, during our break, come in with a few interstitial episodes uh, to tide you over, interludes and the like. So keep an eye on your feeds. We'll be here every now and then. Mm -hmm. Reaching into Mr. Mailbag's gullet to 
to like you know how like if you don't milk a cow for a long time they like start to you know be in pain it's yeah it's like that they with Mr. swell up really large and eventually they turn into perfect ears why do you need to do this why why do you feel the need to, to do this bit it's very roll funny down hills and things that's where cheese comes from it it's all the compressed funny. milk inside the cow mm-hmm, yeah ew what yeah the, the, the yeah the works. milk gets pressed together yeah, because like it can't escape from the the expanding udders. Like they only stretch so far, so then it starts to like compress. Yeah, this is very this is common knowledge. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm sure it is. They teach it at cow school. <laughs> we do have a letter I'd like to close off on. All right. Uh, this is a letter from our good friend Bill, who writes page of the fic. The sweet honey glow of daybreak poured over the page stone in. Lithe Bastomy lay sleeping, sprawled across a love seat. Sunlight, like a bow across a string, slowly roused him in the hum of morning. Good to see you're up, came a voice from behind the bar. Nvoth wore a wide, easy smile, his eyes dancing with a thousand theories as he polished a wooden slab resting on the bar. Mind giving me a hand with this? Have a care and pass me one of those bottles first. The theory keeper grabbed a pink bottle with flecks of bright color off the shelf and handed it to Bastomy. One sharp swig and, ugh, Nevoth, did you know this one was ice cream? I did, and all I have otherwise is donut or pumpkin pie if you don't like it. Hard pass. Let's take care of this ridiculous sword of yours. The two men hefted the large plaque onto the wall above the bar, a searing crimson line of a sword striking its way through the middle of a single word carved into the dark wood. Follyingly, Nvoth stared up at the editor's sword, seeming to age by the minute while a fire burned deep in his soul. Jordanicler burst through the door, nearly tearing it from its hinges. <laughs> I've just come from the shoemaker's, old not-dead son. He heard news from Tarbine, said that King Ambrose tossed Lady Denna, the eighth Chandran, into a waystone, that the moon followed, and then all the clocks started turning backward. He said the cannons were behind it. What in the world does that mean? So it's true, marveled Bastomy. Nevoth replied, the head cannons are a pathway to many theories some consider to be unnatural, finished Bastomy a million miles away. In the basement below, an intern busied himself with a ladle, scooping fresh water from the cistern into a pot, a cracked pot, filling higher and higher. Signed, all that's good, Bill. Oh my god, can we frame that? Can we please print it and frame it? I love it so much. <laughs> I figure there's there's no better way to herald our break than uh, the the marvelous land of make-believe. Bill, I truly feel that you have a bright future uh, as the next great best-selling author uh, with prose like that. I love that the sword is like the red line of an editor. That's so funny. <laughs> oh, and then I came from the shoemaker and then it's funny before before we sign off i'd just like to take a minute to look back uh i think we'll do a bit of a a comprehensive retrospective during our interludes but uh i just want to take a moment and kind of appreciate where we are where we've been this has been quite an undertaking and so much has changed in in all of our lives not just with the pandemic but you know, when I when I proposed we start this podcast, it was largely because I had nothing else going on. I was uh, un- unemployed uh, and 
didn't feel particularly employable. I was applying for, for school or I was thinking about applying for school. I'm not even sure if I was applying for school yet. Uh, but in all the time we've been doing this podcast, I've, you know, I've earned a master's degree. I've found a job that I love doing something that I love. I've found a, a partner who I love. We got a dog together and a place and we're, we're living together. My life has changed completely. And uh, this podcast has been one of the few things that remained a touchstone, not just through my life, but, you know, also through the pandemic. And it's been harder and harder to stay in touch with people. Obviously, the pandemic is uh, a big part of that, but also lives happen and people get busy and people it's harder and harder to to make time for everyone. So I've been very grateful to have this podcast because it's given me an excuse to hang out with you guys uh, a few times a week consistently. I also, I, I like, I want to add to that. If you'll let me, I know you're, <laughs> I'm, I'm rambling now. So please, please. Okay. Well, like I, in a weird way, like the pandemic of course is rough, but it also did an interesting thing for the podcast that makes me feel a lot better about it because I remember thinking when when I was feeling unemployable, um, like a few years ago when we were still doing the podcast, I was like, oh man, what if I need to get a job in another city? How are we going to keep doing this? Is it even going to be possible? We're not going to be able to meet. And now like now that we've done this whole pandemic recording via the internet thing, I feel so much better that like this this will continue and it and it must continue as we have a mission and whatnot and like there's there's nothing stopping us <laughs> yes we, we swore the oath the oath must be fulfilled that's right we we made a dark pact uh i feel like three or four years ago when we started this this show i don't think any of us uh anticipated what like what it would mean and I don't think any of us anticipated gathering the the audience that we've gathered. Uh, and it, it's been a real joy and a real privilege. And Jordana, now that we can all record separately from our own homes, they will, you know, they'll have to kill us to stop us. <laughs> I mean, I certainly hope that they don't feel the need to do that. <laughs> well, we just have to stay on Rothfuss's good side. <laughs> I was going to say, I was like, the only person who, who could possibly have the power and means would be Rothfuss. So let's be nice to Rothfuss. <laughs> in fact, we are quite nice to Rothfuss. Listeners, we'll see you in a few months. Keep an eye on your feeds because we'll drop a few episodes here and there. Keep an eye on the social media because we'll still keep posting. We're at Page of the Wind on Twitter. Uh, we're also at Page of the Wind on Facebook, but I'm not sure we're maintaining that. And we are at Page of the Wind on Instagram. And Patreon. And if you're a patron, don't worry, your content will continue. That's right. The content must flow. Uh, and we're going to flow down the lazy river to next month's page of the